Good morning, everyone. How are we doing today? Wonderful. Uh, so, starting off with a question, how many times does a believer, a Christian, need to hear the gospel message? How many times should you hear the gospel message? As a Christian, I mean, you've heard it, right? You became a Christian. Do you need to keep hearing it? Do you need to hear it more than once? I would say you need to hear it, hopefully, every single moment you enter this building for a worship service. You hear something about the gospel. Now, earlier on when we started this series, we looked at this little picture. And this picture gives you all the clues you need for the gospel message, does it not? What do we have depicted in that picture? We have, to start with, cold fingers. And what are those cold fingers doing? They are juggling, and what are they juggling? Green reindeer. And if you are visiting with us as a guest for the very first time, yes, we are a little bit crazy. But this does relate to the gospel message because it helps remind us in a picture form that when we talk about the gospel, we have to include cold fingers juggling green reindeers, meaning we have to talk about creation, the fact that God created us in a perfect environment. We had a beautiful relationship with him. There was no barrier. There was no sin. There was no shame. There was no death. There was no crying. It was a Garden of Eden, literally. But then came the fingers part of the illustration, the fall. And that fall created a distance between God and man. When we sinned against God, we broke that relationship. And because that relationship was broke, God brought judgment, the juggling. And that judgment said, if you've sinned, I don't care if you call it a white lie, I don't care if you call it stretching the truth, I don't care if you, I'm trying to save someone's feelings, however you describe it, God has said all sins deserve one thing, no matter if it's a small one or a big one. It deserves his punishment. And that punishment is severe. It's not just spiritual death and separation from God. It's not just physical death, but it's eternal death, eternal separation, a future that has no hope, which is the most terrifying future you can have, a future without hope. But that's what judgment is when God looks at sin and judges it. But in comes the green reindeer part. But God said, I'm not going to leave you in that condition. I'm going to give you a way out. And no, you can't earn your way out. You can't do enough good to make up for the fall and the judgment. But I will send someone in this arena called grace. And Jesus Christ will come and live your perfect life, which you could not live, and die your penalty, which you cannot die, or you cannot pay, and give you new life and a new resurrection. Hope, the gospel message. And we are then left with the very last R of that picture, reindeer, meaning that we need a response. So hearing about creation, hearing about the fall, hearing about God's judgment, and hearing about God's grace, it then lays to us, shall I believe it or not? Shall I follow Christ and give up all that I have for him? Or do I reject it? 
There needs to be a response to that gospel message. And so the entirety of the book of 1 Thessalonians is dealing with that very topic. In fact, the entirety of Scripture is dealing with those five things. Creation, the fall, judgment, grace, and a response. And Paul has been talking to them the entire time, letting them know, you have to live this. I've lived it, and I've been persecuted because of it. I have been accused of false things, but you know what my life has been like, and I've wanted to get back in touch with you, so I sent Timothy. That was last week. Timothy came. Timothy came back and gave Paul a wonderful response. And so Paul starts chapter 4 in this letter to him, in, in this letter to the church, by saying, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do more and more. For you know that, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. The very first phrase in verse 1 actually is the words, finally then. Finally then. And some translations do it a little bit differently. The NIV says, as for other matters, it is almost as if Paul is coming to the end of his address, end of his letter, saying, I got one last thing. Here's a little bit of trivia. When a pastor is in his sermon and he's you know, speaking, and he goes, one last thing, what does that usually signify? It probably signifies, if I say it, I've got five more things to say. But just letting you know, we're near the end and we're getting off pretty soon. So when I say one last thing or finally, probably means we're at least in that second half. So Paul is probably in the second half of his instructions to them because he has a lot more to say, not just finally now, but he's kind of wrapping it up saying, okay, this is where... The, the rubber meets the roads. This is where all the nuts and bolts happen. This is where you take your marching orders. Paul might be saying this is the take-home, take-away section of the letter. Okay, Paul, I've heard all of this. We know Timothy was here. Now what? And he starts out with this grand statement in verse 1 and 2, a call to active Christian living. Listen to this. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, again, how many times does he use that phrase? I believe it's seven times now he's used that phrase showing his unity with those other Christians. He has nothing in common with them culturally, ethnically, even language. But he has the most important thing in common with them. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. They're family. They reach into eternity and remain family. So brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Notice the purpose and goal, pleasing God, pleasing God. And he says, I've given you those instructions. I, I'd love to have been there during that sermon series, whatever it was like, when Paul was giving them the instructions. What did Paul see as the nuts and bolts of the Christian life that pleased God? I know it had to be something of the effect Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Make others more important than yourself. Keep harmony. Keep a short account of sins. Don't gossip. Don't slander. Love. 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 
because that pleases God. And he tells them, live this way as in fact you are living. Paul knows these are, even though they are new believers, church hasn't even been around for probably two years even, maybe even a year, but he knows they're living in a way that pleases God. What a beautiful thing to say about a group of God's people. What are they known for? They please God. What a great name tag. I'm one who pleases God. And Paul said, I know you're doing it, and you need to do it even more. That verse 2 is there, or even the end of verse 1 there. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. There is not a stronger way that Paul could have phrased that. He is calling down the name and person of Jesus Christ, saying, by his name, by his power, by his authority, you must do something. I urge you, I plead with you, I beg you, please, please, please do even more and more. More and more of what? Pleasing God. More and more of active Christian living. More and more of putting your faith into practice. More and more of giving the shirt off your back. More and more forgiving. Be more and more merciful. Be more and more tender. Be more and more loving. Give more and more of yourself. When you think that you have no more to give, give more of yourself to those in need. Give more preferential treatment to others than what you demand. Give more and more to their opinion than your opinion. Give more and more. Give more and more. I urge you, by the living one true God and Savior Jesus Christ, to give more and more and more effort energy, resources, time as a living sacrifice. Paul says in Romans 12, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. There's no more I can give if I give myself. Paul says do it more and more and more. Will you ever, and I'm asking you personally, will you ever get to the point where you can no longer give? where you no longer can give any more forgiveness, you no longer can love any more, you no longer can sacrifice your own interests. Will there ever be a point where you are, hey, Tim, I kind of got the quote, I'm at 100%. No. No. In fact, you know what eternity is all about? You giving more and more praise to our God for eternity. So our giving will never end. Yeah, the offering plate will end in heaven. We won't have offering plates. But we will have a time and a moment for eternity where I stand and sing and worship and bow down to my King of kings and Lord of lords forever and ever and ever. I will be giving him adoration and praise for eternity. Now, that might scare some people who don't like praise and worship because that's what you're going to be doing for eternity praise and worship. Active Christian living is vitally important. Hear the video. Hey, I wonder what... 98! 499! What's Tim doing? 500! Woo! 501! 502! 503! 504! 505! What are you doing? It is good to be active! 505 push-ups! That's a lot of push-ups. Oh my, okay, well, 
Let's get active. I wonder what Preston's doing. 999? 1,000. Oh. You did a 1,000? I keep jacked. It is good to be active. I know, look at these guns. Five hundred laps. It is good to be active. I guess. Uh, I'm dying over here. Woo! It is good to be active. That is. So the Christian life should be just as active as any physical activity you have. It should be part of your everyday life. For the record, no one was harmed in the making of the video. Everyone is fine. No one pulled any muscles. But this activeness is not just for, for brief periods of time. The activity that God calls us to as believers is an everyday, all-day activity. There is never a downtime or a nap involved in our Christian activity of pleasing God. In fact, in 2 um, Corinthians, Paul says in uh, verse 9, he says, So make it our goal. Okay, there's another sport thing, goal, activity. Make it our goal to do what, Paul? Please Him. Whether we are at home in the body or away in the Lord, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us receives what is due for the things we have done while in the body, whether good or bad. See, there is a day of reckoning where God will say, show me your faith. No, 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 don't tell me about how you believed in me. Don't tell me, don't tell me. Show me your faith. As a believer, as one who claims Christ is your King, your Lord and Savior, show me your faith. Not to earn salvation. This is all when someone is saved. Part of the body. Show me your faith. What pleased him? Uh, earlier this week, you know, today is a famous holiday. It's Father's Day. It's a day in which uh, the whole day is just spent celebrating uh, fathers. It is... It is spent um, hugging them and pleasing them and giving them their heart's desire. And so, earlier on in the week, in planning for Father's Day, because you have to plan for it. You can't just wake up Sunday morning, oh, that's right, Father's Day. You have to plan for it, and sometimes it takes weeks to plan for it. I totally understand that. It's all worth it, completely worth it. So, while we were planning what was going to happen Father's Day, the question comes up, Tim, what would you like to have for lunch? Because lunch and food pleases Tim. And so you want to make something for, 
for uh, the person you want to please, you want to accommodate their needs and wishes, not your own. Okay, that's just basic politeness, I suppose, if you're trying to please someone. So if you want to please Tim for a Father's Day lunch, you ask Tim, by the way, I'm Tim if you don't know who that is, uh, you asked him, what would you like? And I knew that lobster and steak would be off the menu, so I needed to go with my go-to, just this is an enjoyable meal. So I said, of course, Stouffer's macaroni and cheese and pan-fried hot dogs. All right? Very simple, because even though it's Father's Day, I don't want the rest of the family to have to slave all day to make lunch. Super simple, Stouffer's macaroni and cheese and then pan-fried hot dogs. If you make something else, let's say you make uh, guacamole salad with raw tomatoes, it may look pretty on a plate, but that is not going to excite me one bit. It's not going to please me. So if we're called to please God, and that's on Paul's mind, you need to do it more and more and more, please him, please him, you need to figure out what pleases him. You know what pleases you. You may know what pleases your family and your spouse and your kids and other people. You may know what pleases them, but God is not in the business of asking you to simply serve and please others. He wants you to please him. What pleases God? Think about that simple question. What pleases God? Because Paul's going to say, when you come to that conclusion, you need to do it more and more and more and more. Just do it more and more and more and more. And you can go with the real, well, it's a real answer, and it's a true answer, and it's basically the answer of answers. Said it already. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The two greatest commandments boiled down to two simple statements. Love God and love others. What's common in that is love. Self-sacrificing, self-giving interest to others. Putting others, God first, ahead of yourself. Love, love, love. So if you ever wonder, will this action please God? Will my thought please God? Will my response please God? Will this emotion please God? Will this activity please God? All you've got to do is ask a simple question. Does it demonstrate love towards God and others? Because if it doesn't, pretty good chances, pretty good chances, that's not one of the things that God says, this pleases me. It shows that you value me and care about me. He goes on, in, especially in verses 3 through 8, and we're going to get through this rather quickly. Ah, that's another code word for we got a lot more to go through. But we're going to get through this quickly. Uh, verse 3 through 8, Paul actually gives us an example of one of the things, specifically, that pleases God. And it separates it kind of into this idea, okay, it does relate to other people, but it also does relate to the body of Christ. So all of God's people. He says, it is God's will. Have you ever asked that question, I wonder what God's will for my life is? That's not an uncommon question, that's a good question. Well, here's one of the answers that God says. Okay, you want to know what his will is? It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now, the word sanctified means separated. Now, what separated means in Scripture when God talks about 
you need to be sanctified or separated, meaning that your life needs to look differently and distinct from the world, that you are a polished, beautiful uh, instrument in God's kingdom as opposed to a rusty shovel that's just been buried in the dirt. You are separate from the world. You are different from the world. You are redeemed. You are a new creation. You are part of the family of God. You are part of the body of Christ. You are different than when you once were. And if that transformation has never happened, if you've never been faced with that reality of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, if you've not faced that, then you can't be separated. Your actions don't separate you. What separates you, what makes you holy, what makes you unique before God is a changed heart. It's called being born again or, or saved, coming into the kingdom. And so Paul starts out by saying, this is the will of God that you would be separate, that you indeed would be holy and different than the rest of the world. And that, continuing in verse 3, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Major, major issue in the days of the New Testament. Of course, that's not a problem anymore in our culture and society. I mean, we, we, we value marriage, we value genders, we value sexual relationships only in marriage. I mean, I mean this is definitely a first century thing that Paul has to address the church. Um, one of God's wills for you is sexual purity. Uh, old-fashioned stuff. I know, I know, I know, but it's here, so we're going to read it, and we're going to deal with it. Uh, so one of the things that God wants from our lives is that sexually our relationships with other men and women remain holy and different and unique from the way that the world approaches sex and gender and relationships. And then he describes what he means, starting in verse 4, about sexual immorality. He says that each of you should learn to control your own body. And some translations talk about having a relationship with just one spouse. Okay, but learn how to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Paul, if I could only get first four down, I would not need the rest of Scripture. That is enough right there for you to work on the rest of your Christian experience. Overcoming your own body so that you live holy and blameless before God. That's almost one of those summary verses about, what are the commandments about? Oh, controlling your body and living holy and blameless before God. It's a beautiful summary verse of what the Christian life is all about. Lord, help me control the sin that remains and the danger that remains because if you don't help me, if your spirit doesn't guide me, if God's word doesn't remind me, if I am not preached to, I have the possibility of sliding back into those sins that once buried me alive and choked life out of me. And Paul says that's what we should be doing, learning how to control our own bodies in a way that is holy and honorable. And he continues in verse 5, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. I think that is a tremendously sad verse. It's not a sad verse because there's passionate emotions of lust. 
It's not a sad verse because that's kind of how the pagans live. It's a sad verse because Paul admits they don't know God. They don't know God. That's, that's terrifying to me. It should be terrifying for them. It should be absolutely, eternally terrifying to them not to know God. That's where the gospel comes in. That's where hope comes in. That's where our message, our role, our purpose comes in as a church body is to make that gospel known so that they could know God and have a relationship with Him. But that is a terrifying verse. They are following their own passions and boy, have they expressed their passions in our culture. They have expressed them and I, I have no idea what else they can express. I have no idea what else they can come up with that perverts God's creation than what they've already promoted. It is absolutely vile and disgusting what our culture has done with men and women, male and female, and the marriage relationship. It is, you wonder why God can let it remain so long unjudged. Shocks me. How much more will God put up with? How much more? It is because they don't know God. The solution to all of that immorality, and I'm not just talking sexual immorality now, the solution to all of that immorality that we may be able to point out in our culture, the solution to it, and I wish we could broadcast this to the entire world because it would solve the world's problems. It's Jesus. It is the message of the gospel to change the sinner's heart so they no longer are far from God, but they know him now. That is the solution to the problems of violence in schools. That is a solution to the abuse that happens in homes. That is a solution to the drug problems and the poverty problems and the laziness problems and the inequality problems. That's the solution that they would be drawn near to God through the gospel. And you have the special role of making that known. You are vital in that change of culture. It's not going to be made through the politicians. It won't. Don't look to movies and, and, uh, and music to make the change for you. The change happens by the body of Christ making the gospel message known so that they might know God. That's the solution, knowing God. Because once we have a relationship with Him, all of a sudden, the rest of God's creation now becomes valuable. Your life becomes valuable to my life because you're made in the image of God, and I acknowledge that, I see that, I know it. You're valuable not because of who you are, not because of what language you speak, what skin color you have, what economic situation you're in. That doesn't matter. What matters is you are made in the image of God. Every human has value because of that one fact. You're made in the image of God. And when you are now made right with God, that value becomes immeasurable because you know that it took the blood of Christ to make you whole. And your value 
is eternal. Eternal. But it only happens when there's been that change that you now know God. He continues in verse uh, 6, And that is the matter no one should, uh, should wrong or take advantage of a brother. And that is... And, okay, let me read the verse this time. Verse 6, And that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all who commit such sins as we're told you and, and, and you were told and warned before. Wow, I, let me take a drink. I got so excited, got back to the verse, and I got all confused with my dyslexia. But that's okay, we're back on track. Paul's basically saying there is sometimes the possibility of being in the body of Christ where you abuse that position and take advantage of others. And Paul's specifically speaking of sexually here. And I think we've all seen in media what happens when someone in power exerts that power over someone to take sexual advantage over them, sexual harassment, whatever it might be called. It even happens in the context of a church. And Paul says that can't be. It can't be at all, but don't do it in a church context. You are brothers and sisters. In fact, he continues there in verse 7, For God did not call us to impure, but to live a holy life. Again, that activity that Paul wants us to do is live a holy life. Don't just talk about it. Don't just think about it. Actually live it. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. As if Paul could not be any more serious, he says, and if you don't want to pay attention to my instruction here, don't think that somehow you're hurting my feelings in this whole thing. If you don't agree with this, you're not disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with God. If you think the church has it all wrong regarding sexual morality, your argument's not with me. Your argument's with God. God is the one who sets the standard. God is the one who says what is holy and not holy. God is the one who sets up what is a gender. God is the one who sets up what is marriage. God is the one who sets up what is proper use of sexuality. God is the one who sets that up. So if you don't like the message, don't attack the messenger. Go right to the source and take it up with God. And let me know how that goes. I'll tell you exactly how it goes. He's going to say, who are you, old man, to tell me what to do? I'm God. You're a creature. I created you. I give you life. I give you breath. I keep your heart beating. I'm the one who courses blood through your veins. I'm the one who makes you think. I'm the one who makes you stand and walk. I'm the one who gives you the ability to communicate. I am the creator. You are the creature. You do not get to tell me what to do. You don't get to tell me that it's unfair. You don't get to tell me I'm taking away your fun. I'm the one who sets the rules. Any questions? And I would suggest if you get to that point with the conversation, you act like Job and say, sorry, my mistake. You're God, I'm not. 
Let's get on with the life lesson. Paul continues, I mean, Peter continues in the rest of the chapter, starting in verse 9, all the way down to the end. He says, now, about your love for one another. Paul had to get back to that number one message, love. And now about your love for one another. We do not need to write to you about it, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. What a beautiful verse. Paul says, you know, I'm, in conclusion, I'm coming to the end. Hey, remember your love for one another? Man, from everything I've seen, God's taught you. I don't, have to, I don't have to get into a big, oh, this is love, and this is how you love one another. God's already taught you. What an amazing statement about that church that I wish was true of every single church body there was. We don't have to teach you about love because you already have been taught by God and you are doing it in spades. You are just rocking the love part of living the Christian life. That church was doing that. Verse 10, and in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, do it more and more. Wow. So even when Paul says, your love exceeds my expectations, I don't even have to teach you about it, but I will teach you this one thing. You got to do it more. You got to do it more. You got to do it more. Never think you are done loving God and loving one another. You will never be done with that one task that God has said. Put others ahead of yourself and love them. Love, love, love. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, do so more and more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be uh, dependent on anybody. Paul knows the time in which the church is living at this moment. Nero is almost emperor, and there was going to be massive persecutions probably maybe 10, 15 years after he wrote this letter. I mean, the time where Christians were fed to the lions, lit on fire, put on stakes, horrible, horrific torture of that first century church. And Paul says, you know what? You want to live peacefully with everyone. All right? So do your work. Take care of those daily needs you have. Don't let anyone say that you are a drain on society. But be productive. Be active. Fulfill your role, whatever that might be. And don't make a big deal about it. We don't need plaques and statues about what you're doing. Just live it lightfully and normally. Because the way you're living has a gospel approach, has a gospel purpose. Because someone from the outside is going to see it. Someone from the outside is going to know it. Someone from the outside is going to try and put that two to two together and go, oh, they go to church. They're Christians, aren't they? Well, that was very nice of what they did or whatever it might have been. Your actions are visible. And nowhere does this convict me more than when I fail at driving well. It really hurts me because I know that somehow if that person in that car knew who I was, where I work, what I testify to, man, I would have a hard time explaining it. So 
all of us have a lot of work to do, whether it's driving, whether it's relating to our kids, our spouse, our nephews, our nieces, our friends, whatever it might be, whatever that relationship is, I know we have a lot to work on to make our testimony match our life because the world will look at that. So I leave you with this to take home, and this is the takeaway. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light must take place if anything that Paul has said here were to live. You can't live a holy life. You can't live a life that is pleasing to God without that action taking place first. And the person that you may be thinking of, oh, they need Jesus. Yeah, they need Him. Not to change the outward actions of their life first, but to change their heart first. That redemption and forgiveness is only found in Christ. Why don't you stand up? We're going to close in prayer. And then we can uh, step outside. Our gracious Father, we thank you so much for that message of the gospel. May that word of the fall, and and may all that never seem boring to us. But may we be excited about it all the time so that we could share it with the world. Father, we have the, the message of hope. The message that will transform an entire nation. Help us live it in a way that our words would be well received because the gospel message, Father, is the hope of the nations. In the name of Jesus Christ, all of God's people said,